If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. I believe that everybody has a story, and I'm fascinated to hear them. So come with me as we take a walk down Fascination Street. Hey guys, if you like what I'm doing, click the Amazon banner at the top of the homepage on FascinationStreetPod.com and do all of your shopping through Amazon. Once you click on it and it takes you to Amazon... You can bookmark it or add it to your favorites, and you won't have to go to my site each time. It helps me keep the show going, and again, thanks for listening. Welcome back, Streetwalkers. This episode is with Ken Kabatoff. Ken is a writer on the Netflix television series Travelers, starring Eric McCormick, and he also worked on the television shows Stargate Universe and Falling Skies. And in this episode, we talk about where he grew up in Canada, and what got him into the entertainment business. We also touch on some of the projects he worked on, working on the television show Emily Owens, M.D., of course the show Travelers, Falling Skies, and a brief stint that he did working for Dolph Lundgren. And finally, we talk specifically about some of the episodes of Travelers and the Travelers universe, and the potential that there could be more Travelers content in the future. Special shout out to previous guest of the show, Jennifer Ellis. Thank you so much for turning me on to this wonderful show and this great Canadian gentleman. I appreciate that. And this is my conversation with Ken Kabatoff. Welcome to Fascination Street Podcast, Ken Kabatoff. And before you say anything, I have heard it said Kabatoff by, I don't know, 100% of the people minus one person who says uh, Kabatoff. <laughs> who is the person that said Kabatoff? You. Oh. 
<laughs> it Wait, was... oh, when? Oh, when did that happen? I want to say it was about three years ago on a podcast, and somebody said, is it Kabatov? And you said, well, it's really Kabatov, but... Yeah, yeah, so it, it is actually Kabatov. I grew up with Kabatov. Uh, and when I go back home, I say Kabatov. But to everybody I introduce myself to is Kabatov because it's spelt that way. It reads that way. I'm tired of correcting people. And uh, frankly, it's it's growing on me. I like the way it sounds. So, But I'll take, I'll take either one. And truth be told, you're Canadian, so you're too polite to correct anybody. Well, you know, I was correcting people for a while, but uh, it just got to be annoying. So I just said, you know what? Kabatov it is. And... Uh, I mean, on one show, I think that that just became my name for, for not even Ken, just where's Kabatov, you know, so it stuck. Nice. You were playing with fire when you were correcting everybody at the beginning. I mean, that sort of behavior is liable to get you thrown out of Canada. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, we have a code <laughs> about that. But no, in the end, it's, uh, you know, I like both names. But certainly when I go back home and visit family, if I say Kabatov, uh, they're like, what did, what did you just say? I've never heard that before. I'm like, ah, don't worry about it. Kabatov. It is what it is. Merry Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> this is a long time coming. <laughs> yeah, I know. Sorry about all of all of that. It's been uh, it's been a wild few weeks. But uh finally connected. Well, I'm so excited that you started this off by saying the most Canadian thing ever said. Apologizing for it? Yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> well, uh, apologizing is definitely Canadian, but you said I'm sorry about that. That's awesome. <laughs> oh, I guess yeah, my accent's coming through. Uh yeah. Absolutely. That is fantastic. So first of all, thank you so much for not giving up. I appreciate that. Oh, no, no. My pleasure. Thanks for taking the time. So uh, where were you born? Where were you raised? So I was born in a little town called Trail, BC, but uh, raised just outside of Trail in a little town called Nelson uh, in British Columbia. If you've ever seen the movie Roxanne, that's where they shot Roxanne. So it's this mountain town, beautiful, picturesque, just like the, one of the most gorgeous places on the planet. And uh, yeah, grew up in the country, small, Nelson's maybe five, 6,000 people. And then I grew up outside of that uh, in the mountains. Are you talking about the Steve Martin film, Roxanne? Yeah, exactly. Okay, so that little town was so Norman Rockwell picturesque, I thought it was fake. Right? Yes, that's the town. Even I was just there, you know, a month ago. Whenever you just drive in, it's, yeah, it looks amazing. It's breathtaking. So. Wow. I, I understand why you would keep going back. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's a beautiful place to be. So I grew up there. Yeah. Went to school. And then right after high school, I, I came to Vancouver and I've been in Vancouver. Uh, I still live in Vancouver. I've been here for about 12 years ish. Gotcha. So a little bit of a history about how I came across you. Sure. Uh, on Netflix, you know, every once in a while, it'll recommend things for you. Mm -hmm. And it'll say, if, you know, you'll probably like this. It's a whatever, a 98% match, 99% match, whatever. So it, it had been recommending this television show called Travelers. Yeah, I think I've heard of it. You might have even seen one of the episodes, Ken. One or two. Yeah, just one or two. <laughs> so I was like, huh, I've never heard anything about this. But the little picture was of Eric McCormick. And I'm like, well, everybody loves that dude. And Netflix says I'm probably going to like this, so I'll give it a shot. So I'm watching the pilot, and I did what I, I may be biased, but I feel like most people do this when they're watching a television show. They pull out their Twitter box. Right. And they look up Eric McCormick, and then they follow Eric, right? Because that's what you do. You're like, oh, cool. I forgot how much I love this dude. Let's see what he's up to. Yeah. Well, while I was doing that, watching the pilot, he retweeted 
this video that was, I guess there was a Travelers fan group that had a, um, they were sort of running a campaign of what does Travelers mean to you? Mm-hmm. And this young lady, she it, she posted a little video about how she uh, really loved the show so much and it sort of, you know, gave her the idea that second chances are kind of a real thing. And yeah. Uh, long story short, by the end of this video, she had lost over a hundred pounds, and she attributed most of her success to the mindset that that show provided. Yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? Now that young lady's name is Jennifer Ellis, and she is a previous guest of this show. Yeah, and I don't know. I'm sure you do, but at the very end of her video, she shouts you out. <laughs> I do. I do remember that. Yeah, I thought it was a very, very funny and very sweet. It was very funny, very sweet. And yeah, because she, she walks off with the other guy, right? She's right. Like, sorry, Ken Kabatov, can't can't wait for you. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and and he's like, wait, who's Ken Kabatov? And then he's like, yeah, no, seriously. <laughs> oh yeah, no, no, I I loved it. I've met Jennifer uh, a few times, and and she's you know one of the loveliest and, and sweetest people uh, on the planet. So and and uh, one of our, if not our number one fan, I I don't know. Um, she might be your number one fan. She might be. I think that she was telling me that I think y- y'all had taken a photo together and then she lost a bunch more weight. So I think she wants to get another photo. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, well, next time I'm in the, in the Toronto area, I'll have to, uh, to tweet her or she can tweet me. Yes. Look her up. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's, but it's support like Jennifer's that was just so meaningful, you know, while we were making travelers and just knowing that, you know, like especially her story with how, you know, Philip was dealing with the addiction, going to the host body who was a heroin addict and he had to deal with the withdrawal and, and all of that. And to use that as fuel into her transformation and her second chance, if you will, truly inspiring. Just there wasn't a dry eye in the house as we were watching that. So it was it was quite touching. It was quite touching. And, and that was the whole reason I reached out and had her on the show, because I was so impressed by that. And if I'm being honest, her little video and because this show meant so much to her, that was another reason for me to, you know, keep watching this show until maybe the second episode when I when I actually fell in love with the show. So, you know, oh, I, cool. I, got, yeah. I got to give her credit for, you know, giving me a reason to. I mean, it's not like it was terrible. I mean, don't hear that anybody. It's wonderful. <laughs> but all pilots are pilots. And so pilots are a little bit slow because there's so much character development and they have to establish the world. It's so, it's a it's a tough act making right. a pilot. Yeah. So pilots, as a general rule, are a little bit slower than the rest of the show tends to be. So yeah, at least in my opinion. Now you were born and raised in uh, in Roxanne's town, Nelson. Yep. And <laughs> and then at some point you you moved. You said to uh, the Couve. Yeah, I'm I'm uh, moved to the Couve. I wanted to be a director when I was five years old. I knew then that. I wanted to make movies. I wanted to make big budget spectacle movie magic films. And that was because of Steven Spielberg, right? Jurassic Park. I didn't even know what directed by meant at the end of that movie. But I'm like, whatever Steven Spielberg is doing, I want to do that. You know, so growing up, I really focused on storytelling. And, you know, it was directing for a while and then it was acting. And it's like, oh, maybe I want to be an actor. And so I, so I pursued acting for a little bit. And then it was in high school when, and this is, you know, the classic story is that I found a group of friends. One of them had a camera. We started making short films. And then we started making a lot of short films. And uh, there was a local film festival in a little town called Vernon. 
And my friends and I actually did well. Like I think it was in my final year of high school where I made a short film called Bread, Salt, and Water that had to do with a true event that happened during a Remembrance Day assembly up here. So we had a school assembly. Now, the thing about that community that I grew up in or that, that area is that it's it's where the uh, the draft dodgers, a lot of draft dodgers came up in the 70s from the States. And then there's a lot of um, pacifist uh, and conscientious ob- objectors in the area known as the Dukabors. And it's this sect of Russians. And that's my family background is I'm Russian. So to keep a long story short, I made a short film about this controversy that happened in high school. And that short film turned out to be pretty good. <laughs> and so it won like a best drama award here in British Columbia. And then that helped get me a big scholarship to Vancouver Film School, which is then when I moved to Vancouver and uh, went to that program for a year. Gotcha. If that makes sense. It does. And somewhere along the way, uh, and I'm sure my timeline is going to be all over the map on this. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. We'll jump around. Yeah. At some point, do I understand correctly that you were Dolph Lundgren's assistant? Yes, I was. So that was after film school. I graduated during, you know, in the middle of the writer's strike, um, the last writer's strike of, of 08, I, I guess. And uh, there just wasn't anything shooting in town. So I ended up working at a, at a casting facility, which was doing like non-union commercial shoots. So I was like the videographer doing these casting sessions with like kids for, you know, an Ikea bed frame or, or whatever it is. And one day I get a, a message from my boss saying like, hey, there's some like Swedish actor that's directing a movie. And, you know, can you come in on Saturday and do his session? I'm like, yeah, sure. What's his name? And she's like, Dolph Lund- Lund- I'm like, Dolph Lundgren? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's him. I'm like, you're kidding me. Dolph Lundgren, Rocky Four. I And I was, what, 20 years old. Uh, I was just like over the moon. It was awesome. And so Dolph came in, I did his casting session. And then he liked me so much he actually came back the next day to my facility where I was working because he, he just had such a good time. And then uh, two weeks later, they were looking for an assistant and he hired me. Uh, he remembered me and then he hired me and that was that. So I worked for him for a little while. And then some years passed and then there was some sort of a production that maybe they were having a difficult time with him and they needed you to come in and, and run interference. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, that's that's basically true. <laughs> so I was on, yeah, I was on Stargate Universe and I was just finishing that up. Uh, so this is like late 2010, December-ish 2010. And James Bamford, who was the stunt coordinator on Stargate, who's now like a rock star producing director of like Arrow and Supergirl and stuff. James was like, hey, I'm doing this small Uva Bull film, Dolph Lundgren starring in it, and he's causing productions a lot of problems. And, you know, look, I'll say this, Dolph's a nice guy, but there were some problems that uh, were happening. So they're like, hey, we heard you're like the Dolph Whisperer. Can you come in and and help him out? And I'm like, sure. And it was three days of kind of craziness and then two weeks of it was bliss. It was fine. Well, that story, especially the way I made it sound, uh, it made it sound like Dolph was being a little bit unreasonable. And for that, I apologize because it's fairly widely known that Uwe Boll is not the easiest person to get along with. (laughs) Okay, well, I'll I'll say this. So Dolph was being unreasonable the first time I worked for him, which is why I quit. All right. Ah. But the second time around, this time on this Uva Uva Bowl film, uh, he was great. He treated me like his best friend. And, you know, part of it was just the fact was is that we were shooting for three weeks, uh, an hour outside of downtown in the middle of the forest without there's no Wi-Fi. There's no cell service. There's no Starbucks. There's not there's nothing. You're standing in the woods getting rained on and you're shooting a movie. 
that's all you can do. So he eventually, everybody just sort of rolled with it. And, and it was, it was actually a lot of fun at the end of the day. But Uva, oh, Uva's one of the nicest people. He's, he's so great. He's hilarious. That's one of the, that's one thing about Uva that nobody really knows. He's one of the funniest people you'll ever meet. One of the other things that most people don't know, I think, is that uh, if given the opportunity, he will kick your ass at table tennis or ping pong. I haven't had the opportunity. But one day if I if I run into him again, I'll have to talk to him about that. He actually owns a restaurant now downtown Vancouver called Bauhaus. The schnitzel's fantastic. Oh, <laughs> nice. Everybody go check that out. Apparently, yeah. maybe uh, sometimes Ken will be there enjoying the schnitzels. It's true. Yeah. And Uva will be there, too. Oh, cool. Yeah. Now, in 2011, you sold Echoes. I did. Can you tell me about that? So what ended up happening with Echoes... In 2010, I was on Stargate Universe, which was my first full-time job in film and TV. Like Dolph, I was working full-time, but that, that only lasted a few months. And then I was on, I was PAing on like Twilight and certain other movies and stuff like that. But but Stargate was my Twilight. first full-time job. Yeah, I worked on the third Twilight movie, I think. Oh, wow. Yes. The third one just uh, as a locations PA in the second unit. It was, it was cool. Saw some really cool things. Anyway, in Stargate, uh, I was there for the last season. It ended up getting canceled in December of 2010. And I'm sitting at the pub with a visual effects supervisor like a month later, a, a guy by the name of uh, Mark Savella, brilliant visual effects supervisor. And so we're just sitting there at the, at the pub watching football. We're unemployed. And I'm like, you know, why are we waiting for Brad Wright and Rob Cooper to create another show? I'm a, a writer. I was just really getting into writing at that point because, like I said, I always wanted to be a director. But it was Brad Wright and... Rob Cooper, actually, that inspired me to focus on writing. Long story short, Mark and I were talking about, you know, what could be a good idea. And we came up with this idea about this uh, young girl who sort of wakes up in the middle of the street, in the middle of a war zone, and meets this group of people. And she realizes that this isn't a human war, but in fact, we're at war with these aliens who have invaded the planet. But not only that, the aliens aren't actually fighting us directly. Two alien races have come down to the planet, and they're fighting each other, and we're just caught in the middle. We came up with this idea and quickly wrote the script, and it was not good. It was not good, not good at all. But within two months of that, we basically shot a presentation piece, or, or what they call a sizzle reel for Echoes. I guess this would have been March of 2011. I was the producer, production manager, you know, co-writer of this piece, and I had the entire Stargate Universe crew working for me, which was pretty cool for me because, you know, three months before that, I was the guy getting them lunch, and now we're shooting this, you know, huge alien invasion thing over the, over the course of a weekend. And we shot it on the Watchmen set, which doesn't exist anymore, but uh, the movie The Watchmen built this huge outdoor city street set in Burnaby. And so we used that, and it, it looked fantastic. And, and even still to this day, it holds up. And uh, we ended up partnering with uh, two visual effects companies to do a lot of the alien work and the spaceship work. We ended up then selling that to Bell Media in, I want to say, 2013. It took a little while to actually get the deal done, but that was Echoes. And then we went through development. We had a great showrunner on board named Carl Binder, who was a Stargate writer. Carl wrote, wrote a great script. Because the script that I wrote was not good. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was terrible. I, I don't even want to go back and read it because I'm just, I don't know. It's There's a lot of cringing that would happen, uh, something like that. But we had Carl on board. He wrote a great script. And then Bell didn't pick it up. In fact, they didn't pick up anything that development cycle. That's But that's just a testament to the Canadian television industry right now. But yeah, that was Echoes. Is there a, a future for it? You know what? Yes, one day. Absolutely. I, I ended up actually 
rewriting the script last year at some point. So I did go back and look and it was awful, but I did a pass on Carl's script and just sort of punched things up to make it more my own. And so I have it. It's sitting there and it's just a matter of timing, I think. Do we want an alien invasion series right now? I don't know. It doesn't seem like that's what people are into. So, you know, it's in the wings, ready to go one day. Well, if and when that happens, I'm sure we will all be just as excited to see it because it's got your name on it, my friend. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you. I, I hope so. I hope so. I mean, that, and that's part of the thing, you know, that's sort of what we do is that we develop these projects, we, we write them, we help them grow, and sometimes it's just not their time. I mean, what is it like? Madman took 13 years or something like that to actually get off the ground. You know, he'd been trying to sell it. So one day. Yeah, some things just take a long time. I think John Hamm said he was in something like 32 pilots before the Mad Men took off. Like he was in a bunch of different stuff that just never happened. So you never yeah. know what's going to hit. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of you never know what's going to hit and what's not going to hit, my name is Steve Owens, and I do not have any doctors in my family, and certainly none of them named Emily. Can you tell me about your time on this show, uh, Emily Owens, MD? What did you do for that show? <laughs> so I could talk about it very briefly because all I did was, okay, I worked on the pilot. I was a producer's assistant. This was during a, a chunk of time in my life where we had finished shooting Echoes. This would be like late 2011 now through to end of 2014. And I was working for a producer named Grace Gilroy, who is one of the best line producers in Canada, period. She's amazing. I learned almost everything that I know about making TV from her. Yeah, truly incredible. So during that stint, we made a whole bunch of seasons of Falling Skies, that Steven Spielberg alien invasion series. And I was her assistant. And then in between seasons of Falling Skies, we did a, a few pilots and Emily Owens, MD, was one of those pilots. When I worked on it, it was called First Cut. It was great. I remember uh, Mamie Gummer was super cool. Just, you know, this ball of sunshine and really great cast. Uh, it was a good script, a, a lot of great people. And it was a, it was a fun shoot. For those listening, uh, Emily Owens, MD, had a, I guess, relatively unknown star at that time named Justin Hartley, who currently plays Kevin Pearson on This Is Us. Yeah. So, you know, th this goes back to one of those things where, you know, sort of like I was talking about with John Hamm, you know, some things don't happen so that others can. So, you know, I'm not saying A plus B equals C, but... If Emily Owens, MD, was still on, he might not be on This Is Us. I'm just saying. It's true. It's totally true. Yeah, and he's a really great guy, I have to say. I had, he's, he's funny. He's uh, really smart, and it was fun working with him, yeah. Oh, good. That's always good to hear. Yeah. How did you come to be a part of uh, Following Skies? How did, how did that happen? Oh, basically, I needed to get back to work because I had taken most of 2011 off to do Echoes and just really, you know, try to get my foot in the door with writing. And when you're a production assistant or producer's assistant or whatever, money only goes so far. So uh, I needed to get back to work. And I applied for a job on Falling Skies. Now, the new showrunner of Falling Skies was a guy named Ramey Obishan. And Ramey worked on Stargate. And so I emailed him to say, hey, do you think there might be any opportunities? And sure enough, it looked like there was one. And so, you know, that old saying of, of you know, it comes down to who you know. Yeah, that's partly true. So I got onto Falling Skies and, and then was quickly um, promoted to the producer's assistant position to work directly for Grace. And then I was there from seasons two to five. Oh, wow. 
Yeah, it was a good run. I mean, I learned a lot on that show. Everything that could go wrong in a production, I want to say, went wrong at one point on, on Falling Skies. So you learned a lot about what not to do. You learned what to do. The best part, though, was like our, our crew and cast were amazing. Everybody was super talented. And so it was a really just crazy experience. Because I don't, I don't know if you know about the, sh the show or what it's about, but it's an alien invasion series where it's very much us against the aliens. You know, we're battling them like Saving Private Ryan. And it, that's what the show felt like every season when we were shooting. It felt like, you know, you were gearing up for war every time. And we would be shooting in the winter, late fall and winter in Vancouver. So it gets dark at like 4.30 <laughs> and it doesn't get light until like 8. And then uh, it's just cold and wet and muddy. And uh, that's really what I remember from Falling Skies. That sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, it's... Yeah, fun. Just kidding. Fun, fun. Weather like that's terrible. Well, we always knew that, like, moving into, like, the seasons three or four and five is that Jonathan Frakes would get billed as the director for, like, episode eight or nine, typically. And eight or nine is usually when the crew was, like, at their lowest. Because it was just, it's now, like, end of January. You've been doing this for months. And it's just so depressing and hard on your body. And then Jonathan Frakes, you know, from Star Trek comes in. And he's just this huge ball of energy and he's funny and he gets everybody energized and, and uh, he's just such a positive force of nature on set that uh, it's like it's a great pick me up for the crew when when Jonathan comes in to direct your episodes. Do you think that's why he was scheduled for that particular time frame? I can't confirm, but I do want to say that a phone call happened from production in the early seasons to say, Hey, yeah, what just, what you just did with that scheduling, do that again next year. Cause that really helped. So I never thought about that, but that makes a hundred percent sense that some sort of scheduling like that should be taken into account just for morale reasons, if nothing else. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's really cool. I never even thought about that. Yeah. I, I know that uh, a lot of that show, I think it was a Noah Wiley show, right? Yep. Yep. Now, a lot of that was filmed maybe under a particular bridge. Yeah, the Second Narrows Bridge. Yeah. Iron Workers Memorial. Yeah. Now, that's not in the middle of nowhere. That's right. Smack dab in the middle of everything, isn't it? Yeah. it, it That set in particular is. Uh, that's on, yeah, on the north side or on the south side of North Vancouver. Confusing as that sounds. But yeah, it's underneath the Second Narrows Bridge. We had like a four-acre exterior lot that is basically just a bunch of facades, uh, just a bunch of fake walls and, and stuff like that. And we built over the course of, I think we had it for all four seasons. Yeah, we did. We built some pretty cool sets, uh, exterior sets there. And the, the coolest part too was like when, when you're shooting and you could do a full 360 in the center of it and not see any film equipment or, you know, planes or trains or cars or anything. And, and, uh, cause it was just so all encompassing. It was really cool. Now, I'm glad you mentioned seeing film equipment in frame. That's going to come up later sure. for something else. So <laughs> thank you for planting that seed. <laughs> but one of the coolest things about that Under the Bridge set was what you did with it after the show was over. This blew my mind. Oh, okay. Yeah. Do you want to say or should I? No, you say it. Nobody cares about what I'm saying. They're listening to you, man. Okay. I think this is where you're going. Is That set is now or was now or was being used for uh, for the 100, right? They bought it from yes. us. Yeah, we, I, remember, I just remember the conversations of, of selling the 100 of a whole bunch of like fake concrete. Because concrete's actually really expensive to make. Not the real stuff, the fake stuff, because it just takes so much uh, labor. But anyway, yeah, the 100 has our, has our old set. 
That's so amazing. Who knew you could sell rubble, fake rubble? Right? Yeah. And and, so and I looked when I was watching the show, I'm like, oh, they did. I could still tell, obviously, like where the entrances and exits are because some of those buildings can't move. But no, they did a great job of making it their own. That is so cool. I love that story. Recycling in action. Yeah. And I want to say some somebody else is now using that right now, too. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, it's still there. It's a it's a great piece of land. The only problem with it, and this is why productions can get away with uh, with using it for relatively cheap, is that a train literally <laughs> runs through it. So, so you know, on Falling Skies, every I don't know, I can't remember how often it came by, but a few times a day, it would just be like hold for the train, and oh yeah, you can't hear what the actors are saying. And so I think eventually, actually. Um, they just started saying, no, screw it. We're not going to hold for the train. We'll just ADR this because we're tired of waiting every you know, few hours for this to happen. So a lot of ADR happened in post. That's for sure. Wow. That is nuts. Yeah. A train going right through it. Tell me it was a passenger train and people who were looking out the windows thought that the earth was ending. <laughs> I wish. Well, then we could have like opened it up to tours and stuff too, right? If that was the case. Yeah. <laughs> but no, unfortunately not wasn't the case. Boo. Hey, Streetwalkers. Here's a word from our sponsors. Guess what, Streetwalkers? The gear is here. A bunch of you have been asking for quite some time, and now finally it's here. Head over to FascinationStreetPod.com and check out the gear tab. There, you'll find all kinds of FSP items to tickle your fancy. T-shirts, coffee mugs, sticker packs, pins, buttons, coasters... And my personal favorite, for just five bucks, you can get one of those weird little phone handle pop thingies. So head to FascinationStreetPod.com and show the world that you're proud to be a streetwalker. Special thanks to my good buddy, Stephen O'Reilly from the Bar Star Podcast for these dope drum beats. Check out Steve's work at O'Reilly Drums on Instagram or search Stephen O'Reilly on YouTube. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Let's get back into it. 
Now, you have a background in production and crew. What exactly does that entail? Where do I start? So basically, yeah, my background, I, I worked my way up the ladder from production assistant on like the Twilight movies, as I mentioned. And that's like literally just you're a locations PA, you have your high vis vest on and you're standing in crew park watching the crew's cars for uh, 15 hours a day. That's it. Like there's nothing else going on or you're watching the generator or sometimes after you've been doing it for a while, you get upgraded to be the set PA and then you're actually helping with the physical production of the show. And so I worked my way up the ladder. I made it to the office PA, which is now more of an administrative position. And that helps, you're helping the office coordinator and the assistants there basically distribute paperwork, do the rentals, handle all the official documents and legal documents for the show. And then um, along with that is that's putting out scripts and schedules and taking care of meetings and um, facilitating all of that. And then uh, that was what I did on, on uh, Stargate. But then when I was working for Grace as a producer's assistant, it's a very vague title, producer's assistant. Okay, does that mean I'm getting coffee or am I assisting in, in other ways? And, and it was typically the other ways to the point where, you know, I would get more responsibility as the show went on. So what that would look like, though, I don't know if how many people are familiar with the way TV is made, but basically you have seven days to prep an episode. And then you have seven days to shoot that episode. And when episode one starts shooting, episode two goes into prep. So while the crew is working on set, meetings are happening in the production office for episode two. And then you have, you have scripts for episodes three and four coming in. And you're just trying to wrangle this beast that is the television show. Like, how are we going to shoot this? Where are we going to shoot this? How expensive? Okay, do, that, that's too many aliens. Can we cut down shots? How many times are we going to see this spaceship? That sort of thing. And so as a producer's assistant, I just sort of took on more responsibility to the point actually where in the fifth season, one of the co-executive producers, like who outranked my own boss, he even stopped me in the hallway and he was like, why aren't you getting a producing credit on this show? You're clearly helping us produce the show. And I was like, you tell me, man, you're the boss. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, he, he was a great guy. His name's Todd Sharp. And, and Todd went to bat for me, actually. He went to bat uh, with the network and they said no. And I said, okay, well, that uh, after, you know, four years or whatever, this is now end of 2014, early 2015. I'm like, I need to make a living as a writer. And that was the end of my production, my, my time in production, essentially. But I will say that the, having a production background has saved my ass in so many ways, specifically on travelers. And, and we can get to that in a second. But knowing what every department does, and even knowing a little bit about the jobs that those departments do, and how they do them has benefited me greatly. I can't stress that enough is that know what's going on on set, know who to talk to, when to talk to them, what procedure is, uh, it'll go a long way. So I'm glad you brought up Travelers. And for those who don't know, and I can't imagine there's four people on the planet who don't know what this is, but <laughs> Travelers is a widely popular, almost to the point of cult status television show. It's a sci-fi show on Netflix. But for those who aren't familiar, for those four people, can you tell us what the show is about? Yeah. So basically, hundreds of years in the future, humans have figured out how to send their consciousness back through time. And what they do is that they send their consciousness through time and they um, supplant a consciousness in the present day in a person that is historically about to die. So, Steve, you're walking down the street, you're texting away, and uh, at 3.30 p.m. you take a left turn and you get hit by a bus while crossing the street. Well, Can I interrupt you yeah, for a second? Sure. 
Could we make it 3.47 p.m.? I just like that number better. Sure. So at 3.47 p.m. All right. Thanks. Now you're running late, right? You're in a hurry now because it's 3.47. You're, you had to be there at 3.30. <laughs> Shit. So now you're running late. That's you're, a writer, you're texting. ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Telling them, I, I'm, I'm just a block away. Just, you know, I'll get, order me a gin and tonic. I'll be right there. And you're crossing the street and you get hit by the bus. Well, at 3.46 and 50 seconds... <laughs> A traveler gets uh, supplanted into your body. You, Steve, as a person, as a consciousness, are dead. And that traveler doesn't cross the street in a hurry, waits for the bus to go by, and then joins your friends for uh, for a late lunch. And that's basically the idea. So the traveler from the future knows everything about you. They're going to continue recording podcasts. They probably won't be as good as you, but they're going to try to do it. And um, they're going to continue to live uh, your life. But the, the point being is that these travelers have their groups of, you know, five members. They band together and they're here to stop uh, the future from going to shit. Basically, they're stopping the natural man-made disasters that uh, will cause the dystopian future that uh, or dystopian present that they come from. I love that you said natural man-made disasters. Well, nat- sorry, I meant natural <laughs> and man-made disasters. No, I there got you. Go. I missed the it. word. Yeah. I love it. And also, uh, I know that you love taking notes. So can we go back? And I don't like, I'm not really a fan of gin. Can we just make that a Manhattan? All right. Thanks. Oh, great. Perfect. <laughs> now, I don't know if you know, but as far as I can tell, Travelers had a very fascinating beginning. Uh, something about Brad Wright and a film school class. Can you tell that story? Yeah. So I wasn't in this program, but I worked with the people from it. And I've heard the story a few times. Basically, there's the Canadian Film Center in Toronto, which is a great writing program, production program, editing program, the whole number of things that happen there founded by Norman Jewison. And every year they have a showrunner that comes in for a semester to uh, teach what it's like working in a writer's room. And basically, Brad Wright had um, the pilot script for Travelers. And uh, there was, I think, nine students chosen He basically came in, said, I'm not a teacher. I'm a writer. This isn't a classroom. This is a writer's room. And we're going to figure out the rest of the stories for the show. And so they broke what became the first season of Travelers. And walking out of there, I think they had eight or nine scripts, something like that, or eight or nine stories. And then they made a deal. And, and, you know, obviously, like the students are credited for their episodes in season one. They managed to sell the show that way by saying to Netflix and, and Showcase, hey, we have all of these scripts. And... And a testament to how great of a producer and, and showrunner and human Brad Wright is and Carrie Mudd is that all of the students' scripts uh, that they wrote out of that program and that we ended up shooting in the first season, you know, they were credited for for those scripts. So it's pretty cool. That's a really cool story. It's an anomaly. It doesn't happen. I don't know if it'll ever happen again. I mean, in, in some ways, Orphan Black, I want to say, started in that same program. It didn't exactly evolve the same way that Travelers did, but I want to say that Orphan Black did start as a CFC story or script or project, if you will. Gotcha. So Travelers was on, it was on both uh, the Showcase channel in Canada and Netflix worldwide. Did, yeah. did both of those entities give notes or was one of them largely in control of that aspect? Uh, they gave notes. Both entities gave notes. It was also this weird sort of structure because, and and TV normally isn't made this way, but Brad and Carrie really did run the show as far as like the production goes. And and in terms of like them being in control and having final say, because Netflix was on, it was on the acquisition side of Netflix. So we weren't dealing with the same executives that, you know, say House of Cards or Orange is the New Black were dealing with. And so in, in many regards, 
Brad had total control of of the show. And that's also uh, a testament to the trust that these networks put in him for, you know, having produced, what, 500 hours of TV as a producer and writer with all the Stargates, with Outer Limits. It, yeah, it's incredible. His, his resume is insane. So he knows what he's doing. You know, if Brad says this is going to be too expensive to shoot, like in, even in the writer's room process, yeah, he's probably right. So the networks trusted him. They gave notes. Uh, we did the notes if we felt that they were worthy of doing. Yeah, if, if, if they made sense, right? Yeah, yeah. Didn't have any specifics. I just wanted to know if it was competing notes, dueling notes, if you will. From oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you always get that because just the two entities don't really talk to each other. But Showcase was only around for the first and second season. And then... Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. It became... Uh, solely a netflix original in the third season gotcha gotcha now in season one you started as a story editor what does that mean yeah actually i started i wasn't even a story editor story editor is uh is basically it's a it's a title in uh, the hierarchy of writers this is typical in the state staff writer story editor executive story editor co-producer and onward all the way up to executive producer in canada the the lowest position is story editor but yeah, I was a story editor in season one. But before that, I was actually, I didn't get hired as a writer in season one. What ended up happening was that once Travelers was greenlit, I tried to get a job and Brad had staffed the room. He had four writers and himself and he remembered me from Stargate and he was like, oh yeah, yeah, Ken, like the office PA. That was, you know, six years before that. And in that time, that's when I learned how to make TV, you know, and I, I knew how to make TV like the back of my hand at that point. I knew how to budget a, a scene for visual effects. I knew what I was talking about. Brad couldn't hire me as a writer. So he basically was like, no, I think I told them, I said, I'll be your assistant. I'll be your script coordinator. And I'll also do legal clearances. But, you know, I, I want to help out on the show. And then very quickly, though, Brad and I, you know, hit it off. And, and then about halfway through the season, he promoted me to a writing position. So I, I basically, if you look at the, the credits in the first season, uh, the tail credits, you'll see a whole bunch of slashes next to my title because I had like four different hats on that that year. So Yeah, I was going to ask about all those slashes. I don't think I've ever seen that before in credits where <laughs> one person had so many different slashes. Yeah, yeah, the assistant with his own title card. No, it, it almost came to that, yeah. That was your very own slasher film. <laughs> oh, nice. There we go. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, it, it was a very, very busy season. You know, what I brought to the table was my production experience for sure. Okay, so then season two, I guess for lack of a better word, I'm going to use the word promotion. You got a promotion uh, yep. in season two. Yeah. To what? I got promoted to executive story editor. It's a little bit of a raise. It's, it's a better title. But we were doing the same job, essentially, as season one. And then in season two, though, I ended up co-writing two scripts in the first half. And then Brad, it was a very nice gesture. He gave me the uh, season finale to write in season two. Oh, wow. Yeah, it, it, I mean, it was a timing thing. A little bit, because just based on how the other scripts were divvied up. And then we all knew that Brad had to write episode uh, 210, which was the Marcy flashback story with her in the uh, in the mental institution. And yes, that whole thing like that is such a Brad Wright script. And we're like, Brad, you have to write that one, which meant then that episode 12, which was the last script, had to go to me. So <laughs> pressure was on, needless to say. Nice. How do you know if you're successful in writing an episode? <laughs> oh, God. There's a few joke answers I have, but they're, they're a little mean. 
how do you know the other writers say something like, huh, that was pretty good. Yeah. All right. <laughs> or, or, you know, Brad will say something like, eh, that doesn't suck. No, it's, we're, we're, we're all very supportive, but how do you know? It's, it's the reaction from, from the actors, from the crew. One of the best things about working on Travelers was when I'd walk into someone's office, you know, department head's office, whatever, and they would ask questions about the next episode, not because they're trying to do their job, but because they're genuinely curious about what happens to the characters. And that's such a cool feeling. It's amazing. So we're very lucky on Travelers with that, that, you know, you're a fan of the show. Uh, I was a fan of, of the show and, and writing it. And I love the characters love just being being a part of it. So to answer your question in a very long winded way, yeah, you get the feedback, you know, that's that. But but also when you're writing it, it's it's harder in the first season because you don't know the actors as well and you don't know the characters as well. But like by season three, you could read a script and very easily say, oh, okay, well that's clearly a McLaren line. That is a Trevor line. That's a Marcy line. And and you could you just know how to cater the dialogue to these actors and what they can and pu- can't pull off. And so I think we were getting better as the show went on as well. Uh, I agree. Now let's go back to season one for a second. Sure. You did not write season one, episode five, right? No, no, I did Good. not. I have a question. Hopefully you can help me with this one. Okay. So season one, episode five, it opens up with an entire family in a car driving at breakneck speed, the top of a parking garage. Yeah. The dad slams on the brakes just in time to not go off the top of the parking garage, which would have killed the entire family. Now, going back to the consciousness being transplanted or however you want to say it, Mm -hmm. that's what happened. That's why everybody didn't die. And, you know, also there was there was a misfire, blah, blah, blah. But my question is, yeah, during that entire car ride and up to the point where that scene was over at the conclusion of that scene, I don't want to spoil it, but sure. During that entire scene, there are about mm, five, six, maybe seven GoPro cameras visible on the inside of that car all over the place. Yeah. Uh, how come? <laughs> so that's that's how the director found the family. That's how travelers were able to be sent from the future into this family is because that was supposed to be a videotaped like murder suicide that the father was committing. And so the cameras were actually they're not film cameras they're actually props i mean we did use them for shots but it was also a part of the scene so you know how we use security cameras like if the director has a security camera feed of you he can it can generally right send a travel yeah. same concept is that you know the uh, metadata in that video was able to then be used by the director to send the travelers into the family members was that ever explained in that episode nope <laughs> I don't think so. I don't remember. Or if it was in an early draft, it may have get, gotten cut or something like that. Okay. But so uh, when yeah. I saw that episode, I yeah. freaked the F out. I was like, holy shit. How sloppy is this? They just left all the cameras in the scenes. What's going on? And then uh, I reached out to Jennifer Ellis and she was like, no, no, he was recording that and it was going to be a you know murder suicide. And then the director and I was like, did I miss that? Where the hell did you find that information? So I don't know how she knew that, but she was right. You are correct, Jennifer. Because Jennifer is brilliant. That's why. That is why. Uh, but there's actually a shot after the family has been overwritten. They get out of the car and one of the family members actually takes a GoPro and puts it on the it's roof. It's the dad. I believe it's on it's the dad. Yeah. The dad does on the roof. Yeah. And that was to show like, hey, 
audience, this is also a prop in the scene itself. This is not just a film camera. Gotcha. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Wow, Jennifer, I tell you. Gen- good yeah, one. Yeah, no kidding. She, she really is the biggest fan. <laughs> yeah. Just the fact that you brought that moment up. It's one of my favorite things uh, about Travelers because we'd have these moments and then we would bring that up in the writer's room and say, like, is that clear enough? Is it is it too clear? Is it on the nose, as we say? Or should this be clarified? It's a testament to Brad Wright as well of just going like, no, the audience will figure it out. That's a complicated example that you just brought up. But we have a lot of that going on in the show. Like, I, I'm proud of the show that we don't spoon feed you a lot of information. Yeah, it's definitely a thinker. Like, it's it's not the kind of show that you can, you know, be doing your taxes while you're trying to watch. No, no, you certainly can't really. It's funny that you started this conversation by saying, as I was watching the first episode, I was on Twitter, but it's really one of those shows where you, you can't be on Twitter or, or on you your You have phone. to put Twitter down. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. It took me probably twice as long to watch the pilot as it should have. Because, <laughs> right. Because, you know, I'd, I'd look up from my phone, I'd be like, shit, I missed something and I have to go back. And finally, I just had to put my phone down. So you're right. Yeah. So that was season one, episode five. Hey, Streetwalkers, here's a word from our sponsors. Hey, guys, if you like what I'm doing, click the Amazon banner at the top of the homepage on FascinationStreetPod.com and do all of your shopping through Amazon. Once you click on it and it takes you to Amazon, you can bookmark it or add it to your favorites and you won't have to go to my site each time. It helps me keep the show going. And again, thanks for listening. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Let's get back into it. Now, let's fast forward a little bit. Yep. Season 2, Episode 5. Yes, which, which I did you, write. You did write. Yeah. Now, I believe that there was a story about a rewrite of that episode that sort of, in a sense, made you afraid to write for a little while. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> now having fla- uh, like acid flashbacks. <laughs> PTSD. <laughs> yeah. So basically, you know, I, I, wrote, I co-wrote the episode with a very good friend of mine, Jay Whiting, who was, who was actually in the CFC program where they developed Travelers. So Jay has been with the show from the very, very beginning. Oh, okay. We knew what the episode was. We went to write it. We handed in our first draft, and we thought we did a pretty good job. So this is the difference between, like, Jay and I. Brad comes in, and Brad is he's very nice about it, but he's not that happy. Uh, he's just like, look, the script is short, and we need to talk about a lot of these scenes. And he sat us down and just, like, went through the script and just... In my perspective, my memory of this, it was that he just eviscerated us. Jay was like, yeah, it was just a normal conversation with Brad. Like, he was just, it was fine. Like, this is a problem, this is a problem, this is a problem. 
And I walked out of that office going like, oh my God, I am going to be fired. My life is over. This is insane. And I looked to Jay and Jay was like, well, that went pretty well, huh? I was like, this Jay, what do you know? Oh my God. What meeting were you at? Yeah, exactly. And so the basic issue with that script with the very first draft was that we just sort of handed in the reader's digest version of an epidemic episode. Okay. And I, I'm not going to speak for Jay on this one, but I needed to do more research myself. And so that's what we did. We just took a few days and we researched the hell out of this. And that provided so much more story and dialogue opportunities. And we were then left with the script for 205, which I think is one of the best scripts as far as like what I have written on Travelers. I think that's one of my favorites for sure. I'm really proud of how that episode turned out. But it was definitely touch and go there for a few days where I just I couldn't type because I was second guessing myself every single time I wrote a line. I'd be like, oh, is that good or is that not good? I don't know. But you just eventually have to just trust your gut and go for it. You know, yeah, uh, I feel like that's probably the case in most professions. Once you get a little bit of a, um, you know, sort of a pushback, some not some tension, but, you know, sort of a wake up call to yeah. you need to do your job better. Then I think that, you know, we have a tendency to second guess everything for at least a while before that waters off. Yeah. Yeah. So, oh, that makes sense. And it's it's not that we didn't research at all. Uh, we certainly did. Right. But it was just we didn't explore certain scenes uh, as far far as we could have, you know? Gotcha. And then once we did that, the whole script opened up and there's so many more opportunities, story opportunities. And it was, yeah, it was really cool. I'm really proud of how that, how that episode turned out. You should be. That's one of my favorites. Oh, thank you. Thank you. You're it was the, one of the nicest compliments uh, besides what you just said uh, that we got for that episode was a microbiologist in Canada named Jason Tetro. Uh, he tweeted us and said that, I'm paraphrasing here, but that it was one of the most accurate depictions of a viral epidemic that he's ever seen on film or TV. Because believe it or not, Contagion actually gets a lot of things wrong that we don't get wrong in that episode. I've still stayed in touch with uh, with Jason because he's he's such a great guy. And now I have a science advisor for any viral things that I'm developing. So big thanks to Jason for that one. Nice. Very cool. Yeah. Now, you know, typically... At people's workplaces, no matter where they work, there's witty banter that goes back and forth when there's no customers or whatever around, right? Sure. Yep. Did you guys have sort of a maybe code words and stuff where somebody would say something dumb and you'd be like, what, what were you overwritten? In terms of uh, the story process, the story breaking? Well, I mean, did y'all use like a show slang? Oh, um, oh, I see. <laughs> you know what? I feel like we did have some like inside baseball jokes about the show, but... It's been so long, I can't. I can't remember. If anything pops into my head while we're on uh, while we're on this interview, I'll I'll say it. But off the top of my head, no, I don't think so. You know, like oh man, that script. You you misfired. <laughs> you know what? I'll remember that though for ne- next time I read one of uh, one of Jay's scripts. I'll I'll make sure to like throw some travelers. Yeah, uh, throw some lingo traveler at him. slang in yeah. there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. In between the shooting and the actual airing of season two of Travelers, you okay, wrote a yep. movie. I did? You did. Oh, which... I don't know. <laughs> In case of fire? I've written a couple movies. None have been produced yet, but... Uh... Well, my question was going to be, did every, anything ever come of that movie? <laughs> okay, not. yes. Uh, I'm just... I'm, I'm thinking back to that time. Yes, I was working on In Case of Fire, 
And so that movie, actually, funny enough, it just popped back into my life uh, two weeks ago. Right after I'm done talking to you today, I'm going to be diving back into that script because we have notes from our director. So with any luck, we'll be shooting it next year. In Canada? Yeah, yeah, in Canada. I can't say too much about it, but I, what I can say is that it's a like a corporate conspiracy thriller, something, you know, in the vein of Michael Clayton meets like enemy of the state. And uh, it's set in the Alberta tar sands, which is, you know, one of the most global places in Canada, because it's it's um, the oil industry, right? And it's just about the corruption and, you know, what's happening to the land and and how it's affecting these uh, First Nations communities that are up there as well, just about this guy that's caught in the wrong place at the wrong time. And it's, it's been a lot of fun to work on. And so we just got our director on board, we have a great Alberta production company, and now we're gearing up to get financing for it. Well, uh, you know, you, you don't have to give too much more detail on that. Just tell everybody date, time, and place of shooting that so that we can all show up. <laughs> uh, you know what? As soon as I, I know that information, <laughs> I'll, I'll shoot you an email. Yeah. But I, I really, I'm really hoping it is next year because that's how this industry works is that everything that you're watching, it's kind of like looking at the stars, right? Whenever you look at the stars at night, you're looking back in time. Right. You're looking back in time just to a time that once was. And that's like watching TV or movies is that these ideas are old ideas. They're years old. And that's how long it takes to get this, this stuff made. You know? Oh, speaking of time, why was Travelers set in 2017? Well, it started in 2017 because we shot the first season in 2016. By the time it premiered, it would be close to 2017. But because of the timeline of the show, we couldn't jump too far ahead in uh, showtime, if you will. You know, some episodes happen the very next day. Some episodes happen weeks later. And so we could never really just get out of 2017. Uh, as far as the show timeline goes. The difference would be if in between season two and three, we managed to, you know, leap forward a year and a half. Well, some shows can do that, but based on our cliffhangers, <laughs> it's really, really hard to do that, right? Also, uh, based on sort of the position of some of the you know main cast, like I think his name was Trevor. He was in high school, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, you fast forward to that dude being out of high school and we're all going to be confused. Yeah, and I feel like we did something there where I think he just stopped going to school because <laughs> he moved out. He, yeah, he moved out of his parents' house in season two. Oh, my God. I should know this. <laughs> well, and also, was it a school counselor sort of became part of the team? Yeah, yeah. That, yeah, that's right. Grace. So, yeah. Who Jennifer Spence actually starred in Echoes, that presentation piece that I ended up was that, selling. Was so that, that Grace? Yeah, Grace. Oh, yeah. Cool. Yeah, so I've known Jen since Stargate days, because Jen and Patrick Gilmore, who plays David, they were all uh, supporting actors on Stargate. And so uh, I've known them for years. And then, yeah, I talked to Jen about playing the lead in this sizzle reel that we wanted to sell. So she's, oh, she's so cool. She's the, one of the nicest people on the planet. Nice. Yeah, she's nothing like the character Grace, 100%. Total opposite. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. that's good, because uh, at times she wasn't the easiest to get along with. No, no, and she's convincing, I'll say that. <laughs> that's fantastic. Yeah. Do you find it easier or harder or different in any way working in your industry in Canada versus the United States? Yeah, I mean, that's a... <sighs> it's a huge there's, question, there's, right? It's a huge question, and there's so, so many things to say about that. My experience has been this, and I'm, I'm at a, as I talk to you today, 
in this transitional period where I am making my way down to LA. And the reason is there just isn't work in Canada anymore. There are shows that shoot in Toronto, they're domestic productions, you know, but it's shows like Coroner or Transplant or Frankie Drake or Hudson and Rex. And, and that's great that these Canadian shows are being produced and people are employed, but A, I don't write those types of shows. Okay. I don't really do procedurals. I'm a sci-fi fantasy writer. I'll do procedurals, but uh, I'd rather not. And so there are more writer's rooms in Toronto. I live in Vancouver and there are only two in Vancouver right now that I know of. One is Van Helsing and the other one is The Order. Now, I don't know what the future of those shows is. Van Helsing, I think, is already in its fifth. So I can't imagine it going too much longer, which is why I'm looking to get down to L.A. because that is where these things are written. The Vancouver film industry that I was a part of for so long, you know, working in production, right now it's booming. I'm actually right now on the... Uh, the North Shore Film Studios lot. I'm, I'm right next to the stage for the Twilight Zone. And, you know, I was looking at the, at the list of what's shooting in town, and there's something like 50-something productions in town. I mean, if you want a job in film, this is the place to be, right? But you're, you're a grip or you're an electric or you're driving trucks or PAing or whatever, and those are all great jobs. But for what I do as a writer and a producer, there aren't a lot of opportunities here in Canada. Not anymore. So that's why I'm, I'm south-facing. I've been south-facing for a few years. So meaning in terms of everything I develop, I don't go to the Canadian networks first anymore. You know, it sucks to say I wish that I could. But after my experience with Echoes and, and you know, the shitty thing about what happened there was that they didn't pick us up, sure. But they also didn't pick up any shows that season because they don't have to. Right. Because a Canadian network ultimately makes more money by airing. What's an example that's playing right now? Like, let's go, go with uh, the show All Rise. Right. The, the courtroom drama on CBS. OK. Canadian network will make more money airing All Rise at the same date and time as CBS does. And they don't have to pay for promotion. Right. Because then it's an acquisition. They're not paying to actually produce the show. They're paying a small fee to just broadcast the show in Canada. They have their ad sales and that's how they make their profits. And it's sad, but it's true. And so if they ended up making a more original content in Canada, that would be great for people like me, but it would be more expensive for the networks. And we just don't really have the numbers in Canada, right? You in the States, you have almost 350 million. We have just over 35 million, right? There's more people in California than all of Canada. So as far as eyeballs for ad sales go, the math just doesn't line up. I don't know if it ever will. I really, I don't know what's going to happen. And I've had so many conversations with producers about this in the last few weeks. But because of that, I'm south-facing. Uh, whenever I develop a show, uh, I pitch it in the States. That's what I've been doing since Travelers ended, is just pitching and developing and taking general meetings, all with American production companies, studios, and networks. So sort of throw a lot at you. Well, that was a long question, but it was a great answer. It was a great answer. It was sort of an unfair question because it needed so much exposition. But thank you for you. You covered it. Well, yeah, you I hope so. Um, you know, and it's it's a problem that I know that you know I'm not the only one facing this, and I really don't know what to do. <laughs> but we'll figure it out. And look, I like living in LA. I spend a lot of time down there as it is, so it it does feel like my second home. So we'll see what happens. Maybe you'll become a dual citizen. I don't know if I'll ever go that far, but certainly I would look, I'd certainly love my green card. He's like, definitely not in California where they have state and city taxes. No, thanks. Yeah. All of a sudden that's, that sounds like a pretty expensive place to live. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't it? <laughs> all yeah. right. I'm going to ask you to do a couple of more things for me before sure. we get out of here. One, can you tell everybody where they can find you on social media? Yeah. 
On Twitter, I am at Ken underscore Kabatoff or Kabatoff, depending on how you want to type that out. <laughs> and and uh, on Instagram, I'm well, I think I just changed it this morning because I'm working on some production company stuff. But uh, my Instagram is at Forbidden underscore Planet. How curious, intriguing, if you will. Yeah. <laughs> And the other thing I'm going to ask you to do is, uh, can you give a shout out to those bunch of nerds at the uh, Fan Travelers account on Twitter? I believe they are at Fan underscore Travelers. Yeah. Can you just give them a shout out, say who you are and that you love them and they're the greatest or whatever? I do love them so much. And I, I keep track and I read everything that uh, I'm tagged in. And so sometimes if I don't reply, uh, my apologies, but I love everything that you're doing. It's so great to see that what you're doing is keeping the show alive after all this time, after our premiere in December. And who knows? Look, I know that a whole bunch of us would love to keep making travelers and we'll see what happens. That is not at all any information as to like something is in development, but uh, maybe 20 years from now, there might be a new Travelers. Who knows? So thank you for being such great fans. And uh, we really, really appreciate it. I know I've talked to the cast about the fan response on Twitter and everybody's just so appreciative of, of it. So thank you. Well, fantastic. Everybody look forward to uh, 2039, the double feature of the Firefly movie and the Travelers movie. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Oh, great. Now I'm going to now I'm going to get a phone call from Brad going like, what the hell did you just say? Yeah. <laughs> I forgot to tell you, I have more listeners than you have people in Canada. So let's do this. Oh, great. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, travelers might be done, but it might not. We'll see. But I, I do really um, appreciate the, the comments on season three. And I, I feel like it was well received. The ending. And, you know, what, what were your thoughts on that? The ending? Yeah. Season three. And and the whole end of it all. Yeah. I didn't like it. No? No. Because it was over, man. Oh, yeah. I didn't like that part. It's true. It was tough. Yeah, it was very tough. I mean, like like we talked about earlier, that's a very thinker show. I don't think that you have a lot of fans that are, shall we say, dim-witted. Yeah. So it's a thinker, and I feel like you kind of have to be, you know, fairly in control of your faculties to understand what is going on in that show in the first place. <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, it's very complicated with, with, you know, reboots and restarts and version two and whatnot. So that did leave it very, very interesting. You know, this, this mission. The, the idea there was, okay. And, and like, we're not the only ones that got canceled, you know, after season three from Netflix. Right. So this is a growing trend at Netflix you really need to get some incredibly high numbers to get to season four. And so knowing that, well, this could be it, we wrote what would be a series finale, but left the door open just an inch in case we were to come back. And that was the goal there. And the way it ended, even if it comes back, you know, in 15 years, because it's going to be version two or whatever, because the whole program is going to be rebooted, it doesn't matter if any of those actors are available. You know, in theory, it'd be all new people. Exactly. That's the genius of Travelers and, and, and Brad's concept, 100%, is that Brad could be making versions of this show forever, different cast, different locations. There are Travelers all over the world. So it's, it's really cool that way as far as the life that it could have uh, years from now. Similar to the way that Doctor Who gets regenerated. 100%. Yeah. Yeah, new actor, new everything. It could be whatever. So I think that that adds a lot of flexibility and freedom to to the show and the and the potentiality of the show, if that makes any sense. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, cool. Well, Ken Kabatoff. 
Perfect. Nailed it. Nailed it. Before I let you go, is there anything that we didn't talk about or I didn't ask you that you wanted to talk about? I don't know. No, I think that's, that seems pretty good to me. I'm sorry if I, I rambled and, and, and I am just still dealing with this uh, cold. So I apologize for if I uh, stuttered a bunch and whatever. But uh, But no, thank you. I really appreciated this and it was fun. Very fun. You hear all that, Streetwalkers? This nice Canadian gentleman opened up the show with an apology and closed the show with an apology in true Canadian fashion. New dude to boot it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thank you so much for uh, for hanging out and letting us get to know you a little bit better on Fascination Street, man. I really appreciate it. Hey, thank you. Anytime. You have a great rest of your week. You too. Bye. Bye. As always, thanks for listening, Streetwalkers. And don't forget, follow the show on Twitter at FascinationSTPD, on Instagram at FascinationStreetPod. Follow the podcast page on Facebook at FascinationStreetPodcast. And of course, you can always email me at FascinationStreetPod at gmail.com. And if you haven't already, don't forget to hit the like and subscribe button and rate us on iTunes. For the next three months, everybody who rates and reviews the show and sends a screenshot to fascinationstreetpod at gmail.com will get a free surprise gift mailed to them, every single one of you. So do it. Thanks, Streetwalkers. Opening music is the song Magnolia from the 2014 album Intransigence. Used with permission from Douglas Miles Clark. Closing music is Apollo from the 2001 album Into the Known by the band Sapphire. Thanks for hanging out with us and getting to know a little bit about our guest. We'll see you next time on Fascination Street. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group. No purchase necessary. Avoid where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky in line at the deli, I guess. Aha! In my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.